if you've got your Bibles, uh, grab them. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. While you are turning to Ephesians 3, I want to take you back to the year 1999. In 1999, we were partying like it was 1999. I was in fifth grade. Uh, at my elementary school in fifth grade, what we did about springtime was we went through a program called DARE. If you're not familiar with DARE, DARE stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education, or as my friends used to say, DARE stands for Drugs Are Really Expensive. And I guess both of those are true at some level. Um, DARE, the whole program, was designed to teach fifth graders about the dangers of drug abuse and then to give them some real-life tools to resist uh, the pressures and, and some of the external factors that lead to drug use. Um, and I can remember one thing in particular about D.A.R.E. I remember our graduation ceremony. We, we pledged to be drug-free, and then we sang this song. And I can still remember the lyrics to the chorus. We spelled out D.A.R.E., and, and the chorus went like this. It, it said, D, I won't do drugs. A, won't have an attitude. R, I will respect myself. E, I will educate me. And church, I stand before you in all honesty telling you that I sang that song with all my soul. As this little innocent fifth grader, I was standing there like, I am never gonna do drugs. D, I won't do drugs. I meant it from the bottom of my soul. Fast forward to me as a 16 year old and guess what? I'm doing drugs. And I tell you that story because I have story after story after story that follows that pattern of me being filled with zeal and excitement and passion to do what was right, only to see that zeal and passion and excitement evaporate in the face of real world pressure and temptation. I mean, I can tell you story after story of going to church camp and getting all kinds of fired up being on fire for the Lord, like, okay, this is it. This is where I really become like a varsity level Christian. Come home from camp, fall smack right onto my face, back into the same sins and temptation that plagued me. I could tell you about sermon after sermon where, man, I got fired up by church and I was like, yes, this is it. This is the moment where I turn the new page, man. This is where I stop all that stuff. And it would sometimes be just hours later, same day, right back into the same sin. And here's what I found in my life, and I've seen it play out in other people's lives, you and I sometimes will go to motivations that cannot sustain and fuel the Christian walk. There's nothing wrong with dare. There's nothing wrong with church camp. There's nothing wrong with church. If that's your sole source of motivation, you'll, fall, you'll find that it, it evaporates. It can't hold up. And, and it'll do something even worse because my constant failing, my constant big, big promises just to fall flat onto my face, it did something to my mind. It made me start to think, A, I can't do Christianity. I can't do this. Like, this thing isn't built for me. It's for the other good people. I've got too much sin. And because I can't do Christianity, that must mean God doesn't like me. That must mean God's up in heaven with his arms crossed being like, Gosh, this kid is a mess. Get your life together. What, what else do I have to do for you, Chad? I gave you the high church camp experience. I mean, I mean you, you cried on the Thursday night and put your sin into the fire. What more are you supposed to have? If you don't know church camp, that's like a thing that you do on Thursday nights. None of it could sustain. 
It's not bad. It just couldn't sustain. And so it pushed me away from the Lord. It made me go, you obviously don't like me. I don't think I really like you. Why don't we just go our separate, our separate ways? And, and what I want to show you today is the theological, biblical truth that dismantled those two ideas and then built in its place a genuine love and affection for the Lord and an ability to walk in faithfulness that I never had. It, it gave me a fuel source, a, a motivation that held up way better in all the pressures and temptations of life. I want to show it to you today. So get your Bibles, stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to go 14 through 21. We'll wrap up Ephesians 3 today. Here's how Paul writes. I'm reading out of the ESV. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these men and women here and thank you for this passage. Help me, Lord, to teach it well. Spirit of God, I pray you help our eyes to see, you help our ears to hear, and God, may we practice. May we do what is here. Save us, God, from just sitting here, uh, hearing something passively and doing nothing with it. Compel us, Lord, to action after this. And I pray this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. All right, go ahead. Have a seat. Our passage, oh, our passage today revolves around, our, our passage centers around the Holy Spirit. Um, and before we do anything further, like before we start pulling apart what Paul has said here, what we need to do is build out a very clear theology of the Holy Spirit. We need to make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to the Spirit, because I'm a little bit concerned when I say that word, Holy Spirit, you start thinking of some weird, crazy stuff that you've seen on TV or on social media. You start thinking about people who got bopped in the head and they were shaken on the ground. You start thinking about uh, maybe someone who said a prediction about the future that the Holy Spirit told them. I have heard from Lord Almighty that this is going to happen. And then it doesn't happen. Or maybe you've heard somebody say, the Holy Spirit told me you're going to be healed. And they don't get healed. So when I say that and you're like, oh, well, if that's what the Spirit involves, I'm not sure I want that. that. That seems a little bit weird. Let's try and make sure we're all on a clear understanding, a, a solid foundation of what the Bible has to say about the Spirit. The Holy, the Holy Spirit, as taught in the Scriptures, is a he, not a vague impersonal force. It's not like the force in Star Wars. Uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to with masculine pronouns, he, him. I know it's a weird time with pronouns, but that's how the Bible, the Bible describes him as a him. It's a person. And specifically, 
third person of the Trinity. Third person of the Trinity. The Bible describes God as being triune. It's in the very first chapter of the Bible. When God is creating, he says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? Amongst the Trinity. He's talking amongst himself. So theologians will say, one divine essence, three distinct persons. I'll try to put that in more clear terms. The best way I know how to describe the Trinity is with the water molecule H2O. H2O is, is that one structure. It's two hydrogen, one oxygen, but it can exist as ice, liquid, or vapor. And, and we interact with those molecules differently. I can walk on ice. I can't walk on water. I can breathe vapor. I can't breathe ice or water. But all of those are H2O. Now, in order for this example to not fall into the trap of modalism, modalism is a heresy in the theological world, what we need is for H2O to exist in all three states at the same time. And water's kind of cool. There's something called the triple point of water. The triple point of water is where you can have an ice cube that is also melting and also boiling all at the same time. That's about as close to the Trinity as I know how to get. My little peanut brain, that's about as close as I can get. So when we say the Holy Spirit is third person of the Trinity, we're saying he's God, God in his fullness, co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful with the Father and the Son. Here's what he does. The Holy Spirit, on the authority of Christ, Jesus himself said he will come and lead you into all truth. He leads you into truth. Look at me. The Spirit doesn't lead into deeper mysticism, confusion. He doesn't make things more cloudy and foggy. He makes things clearer. He doesn't take you down the rabbit hole of confusion. He clarifies. He gives you a mind that's strong and is, is sober. That's what he does. The Holy Spirit testifies to the glory of Jesus. That's what Christ said. Christ said, when I send the helper, he will remind you of what I've said, and he will testify to my glory. This means, here's where this becomes crazy practical, especially in our day and age. This becomes really practical because if you see somebody standing on a platform like this, and they're saying, I'm preaching under the power of the Spirit, and yet their preaching has a lot to do about themselves, their platform, their achievements, their pocketbook, I would be very, very cautious. Because a man that's truly filled with the Spirit, you know what he's going to talk a lot about? Christ. He's going to point to Christ. He will not talk a lot about himself. He's going to say, look at the majesty of Jesus. Look at how beautiful and wonderful Christ is. Because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit is constantly pointing to Christ. The Spirit also empowers us to live out the Christian life. And this is what Paul talks about here. So let's dig into what he has to say. Uh, what Paul's doing in this section, he's praying. Paul is praying to the God of, of everyone and everything. And that's an important clarification. Because earlier in Ephesians 3, he makes a scandalous statement. He says Jesus isn't just the Messiah to the Jews. He's the Messiah to the Gentiles. And that would have rattled the cage back in first century Greece, first century Ephesus. Jews and Gentiles at this time hated each other. I mean, hated each other. It's hard to put into context how deep that animosity went. Uh, the closest I can think of, like, if you took someone from the Ku Klux Klan and sat them down with a member of the Black Panther Party, that's probably about the animosity you would have. 
they hated each other. There was literally a plaque in the temple that told Gentiles, Gentile, if you cross this wall, you're dead and it's your fault. They hated each other. And so here comes Paul going, I have come to tell you the great mystery. Jesus of Nazareth isn't just for the Jew. He's for the Gentile. God is making a new people. A new people where your earthly nationality is secondary to your heaven, your heavenly nationality. I'm making a new people group where every tribe, nation, and tongue will be represented. Everyone will be unified in Christ in this people group. So scandalous statement. So he says here in the passage, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. I'm praying. I'm praying before the Father from whom every family, everyone, every family in heaven and on earth is named. And then it goes into 16. Here's where he starts praying, what, what he's specifically praying for. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So here's the first thing he's praying for. He's praying the spirit strengthens you inwardly with power. Paul's like, I'm praying you get a divine source of strength from the spirit, and that strength is in your inner being, not physically, not muscles. He's not praying that you get jacked and that you can bench press a lot. I pray the spirit strengthens your soul. You know what he's praying? He's praying you don't fall into the same trap I fell into. He's praying, I ask the Lord that you don't try to sustain your Christian walk with things that are fleeting with things that can't endure real temptation. I pray the Spirit changes the way your mind thinks, gives your soul a strength to fight temptation it never had. I pray the Spirit gives your soul an ability. When temptation comes, you can actually resist it. You can see the folly and the silliness behind it and see that there's a better way of living. I'm praying for that. He's not praying that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He's not praying that you self-correct and self-discipline better, that you become type A enough, that you read like a bunch of David Goggins books and get all motivated. He's not praying for that. The Spirit strengthens you inwardly. That's what I'm asking for. I think one of the clearest verses in the Bible about this reality comes actually out of the Old Testament. Look at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 27. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see it there? I put my spirit in you and the spirit causes you. The spirit causes you to walk in my statutes, walk in my ways, walk in my, my laws and be careful to obey my rules. I want to break the news to you. You were not designed to manufacture obedience by your own strength. Now, do you participate in the work of the Spirit? Yeah. I'm not saying you just go sit on your beanbag and eat Cheetos and be like, well, Spirit, do what you want to do. No, no, you participate. But Spurgeon said it like this. He said, we put up the sail, but the Spirit is the wind. If the wind doesn't blow, we're not going anywhere. So this is what he's asking for, first and foremost. Spirit, strengthen their souls. Give them that spiritual vitality, that spiritual energy, that spiritual motivation to sustain, to, to produce faithfulness, obedience. Then he prays for something else. He'll say this, I pray the Spirit gives you fellowship with Christ. 
in verse 17. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, live in your hearts, take up residence in your hearts through faith. This has been cool for me to think about because in all honesty, even though I'm a pastor and even though I preach the Bible, like I sometimes feel like Christ is very far away. The Bible says he's at the right hand of the Father in glory. And so sometimes it feels like my prayers just don't quite get that far. Feels like he's not hearing. And Paul here says, no, 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 no. If the Spirit of God is in you, you have fellowship with Christ through that Spirit. He's saying here, to have the Spirit is just like having Christ. And this is coming from a guy who met Jesus. He knows Jesus. He heard Jesus speak. He knows what Christ's face looks like. He knows Christ intimately. So for him to say, the Spirit dwells in your hearts, that's like having Christ dwell in your heart, is a profound statement. That's a wild statement for him to make. And this has been an encouragement to me. Because as I go to pray, and sometimes my mind will be like, man, it feels like nobody's listening. It feels like this is just hitting the ceiling. I can go back to this text here and be like, well, wait a minute. No, the Spirit dwells in me. And if I have the Spirit, that's like having fellowship with Christ. The third thing here Paul's praying for is that the Spirit would show you the full scope of God's love. Verse 18. Actually, we'll go 17 because it starts in the middle of 17 into 18. He says, so Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love. All right, pause. He's talking about motivations here. That your soul is established. The foundation is love. It's not guilt. It's not, I'm doing Christianity to get my wife off my back. It's not even, I'm doing Christianity because I want my kids to have good morals. That stuff will not sustain you. You know all the temptation that's out there waiting for you, right? You know how dark it is. You know how crafty temptation is out there. You know what's waiting for you on your phone as you start to scroll. You think those motivations are going to help you fight sin? It won't work. Paul's like, you have to have affections, love, that is greater than than your love for the stuff of this world. You need to love something deeper than the things of this world. That's the only thing that will hold up. Being rooted, grounded in love, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, um, I've been walking with the Lord now for probably, it's been about 13, maybe going on 14 years now. I've preached a lot of sermons. I've been in and around church, done mission trips, done all kinds of stuff. You want to know what the hardest truth for me still to believe is? That Jesus loves me. It's one of the hardest truths for me to believe. Because here's how my brain works. Jesus, you love me if I'm, if I'm useful to you. You love me if I'm preaching well enough. You love me if I'm obeying well enough. Like if I'm checking all the check boxes, then you love me. And the Bible goes, no, that's not how his love works. That, that's more how human love works. His love is far deeper, far greater, far wider than that. And, and I want to try to take you to this 
to the edge of the canyon and let you peer into the vast array of his love. And to do that, I want to show you one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. You've seen this verse. You've heard this verse. It's on bumper stickers. It's on coffee cups. It's on shirts. John 3.16. For God so loved the what? The world. You did better than the earlier service. They were a little slow on that one. <laughs> For God so loved the world. Okay, let's stop. I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried you're making the same mistake that I made. I'm worried you're going, yeah, he loves all the people that are obeying Christianity, but he can't love me. I can't do this. I keep failing. I keep messing up. There's no way he could love a sinner like me. Chad, on what authority could you possibly say the God of the universe loves me? You don't know what's going on in my life. Chad, my life is burning to the ground right now. I have so much sin, so much addiction, so much perversion. How on earth could you tell me with a straight face he loves me? You want to know how? Because this entire book from front to back, Revelation to Genesis, Genesis to Revelation, is filled with major league sinners getting saved by God and then used by God. Like, we'll chat here. Noah? Noah gets blackout drunk, alcoholic. Moses kills a guy, buries him in the desert, and then runs from the trial and goes to another city. If Moses came here to volunteer in the coffee bar, we'd run a background check and go, you have warrants out for your arrest. The police are on their way. David? David outsends you. I don't know, Chad, I've done some pretty shady things. Okay. He commits murder, adultery, polygamy, conspiracy, drunkenness, abdication of his kingly duties, just to name a couple. Let's go New Testament. Peter. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, tries to cut a guy's head off right in front of Jesus. Like you thought, cutting, you thought cussing in church was bad? He tries to decapitate somebody in front of Jesus. John, the disciple that Jesus loved, asks Jesus, can we call fire down from heaven and burn up this entire Samaritan village? I think John's got maybe some anger issues. Maybe he's got some racism against the Samaritans. Paul. Paul, who drags Christians out of their homes, kicking and screaming, throws them into jail, and then advocates for their capital murder. Paul, who watches Stephen get pelted to death with rocks, He's watching Stephen's skull concave in from the blunt force trauma. And you know what Paul's response is? The Bible says he claps heartily. And then he goes, here, let me hold your jacket so you can throw those rocks harder. And turns Paul into one of the most ferocious men of God the world has ever seen. We're reading what Paul wrote. He wrote, I pray you know the love and the height and the depth and the breadth. I pray you know the full scope of his love for you. For God so loved the world, that includes you. It includes you right now where you are. Life as jacked up and messed up as it is, it includes you. Because it's God's specialty to take broken, messed up people and turn their lives into something so beautiful and divine. He did not come for the person who sits in church going, man, Lord, you're so lucky I'm on your team. Like, I'm just nailing this thing. <laughs> he didn't come for that person. He comes for the person 
who puts their head down, cries, and says, I'm not even worthy to sit in here. He came for the person who thumps their chest and says, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Christ goes, that's my people. He so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. He gave his only son that whoever believes may not perish but have life everlasting. The objective evidence of Christ's incredible love for you is that he went to the cross to fully absorb the wrath of God for your sin. On the cross, Christ is treated as if he committed all of our sin. I didn't mess my words up there. I said all and I meant all. Your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin. Christ suffers the punishment for all of it. All that stuff in the past that makes you cringe, killed on the cross. All that stuff right now, presently, the addictions and the sins that you hate, killed, penalized on the cross. You have sin in your future you don't even know about, but God does. And he's already punished it on the cross. Christ, who is perfect, never sinned, suffered it fully so that we wouldn't have to. He takes all of our condemnation, all of our guilt off of us. And then the Bible says he clothes us in his righteousness. He, he drapes us. He protects us. He he envelops us in his righteousness. Then, like what we're reading here, the spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, indwells us. So when the Father right now looks down on me, despite the fact I am not where I want to be, despite the fact that I've got hypocrisy and sin I wish wasn't there, he looks down on me and sees all of my sin killed on the cross, me clothed in the righteousness of his son and indwelt by his spirit That's wonderful news. And I pray that you would see he did that not because he had to. It wasn't like he had his arm twisted and was guilt tripped into it. He did it because he loves you. He loves you. He knows you. He's known about you before the foundation of the earth was laid. He knows you and he loves you. And the objective evidence is what he did on the cross for you. So Paul's praying. I pray the Spirit would show you the vast canyon, the vast expanse of his love for you. And then he keeps praying. I mean, if it was me, I probably would have called it quits there. But Paul's spiritual, and he just keeps on praying. So here's what he prays for next. He says, I pray that the Spirit fills you with all the fullness of God. All of the fullness. Here's what he says, end of 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does he mean by this? He means, I pray that all the characteristics of the Spirit of God are brought to life in you. So if you have an Awana background, or maybe you have a Sunday school background, you probably remember learning about the fruit of the Spirit. Probably had like a little felt board, and there was like some grapes and some watermelons and bananas, and a little banana had like faithfulness written on it. You run up there and slap it on the felt board. Yes. <laughs> Paul's praying, I pray all the fruit of the Spirit the characteristics, the traits of the Spirit, I pray that they are activated in you. They abound in you. They overflow out of you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And so I used to think as a kid, I had to produce that. I used to, I'd hear that and I'd be like, okay, I gotta be more loving. That's how I would internalize it. Through the Spirit, okay, I need to be more loving. You wanna know what's hard about being loving? 
people. People are the worst. I'm one of them, I know, they're the worst. Good luck loving people in our current day and age. Joy? Have you watched the news recently? That everything in the news is like, it's all burning down, everything's miserable, everything is terrible. And you start doom scrolling on your phone, getting sucked into that black vortex of despair. How are you gonna walk in joy? No, no, you need something outside of yourself who produces it in you. That's what you need. That's what Paul's praying for. I pray you're filled with that. All the fullness of God. And then he'll finish on this amazing, beautiful passage. He says, I pray that the Spirit changes your life far more abundantly, far beyond what you could ask or think. Verse 20, this is just such a great text. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work, where? Within. I pray that he does miraculous things according to the power at work that's within you. I pray the Spirit changes your life far more abundantly than you could ask or think. There's two sides of the coin when it comes to this passage. Two sides. There is the first side. Yeah, I'll say it this way. There's a train of theology out there right now, and it, I kind of grew up in it actually, that says because we have the Bible, God doesn't really do the miraculous anymore. Um, and I would just go, yeah, but what about what the Bible says right here? It said he'll do more than we ask or think. That sounds miraculous. I remember going to Cuba. I went to a mission trip to Cuba. And this little eight-year-old Cuban comes up to me. I studied Spanish in college, so I know just enough Spanish to be dangerous. I'm trying to speak to him. And he comes up to me and goes, hey, do you like baseball? I said, yeah, I like baseball. He goes, who's your favorite team? I said, well, I'm a Christian, so obviously the Dodgers. The Dodgers are the Lord's team. And I think I can prove that biblically. And he goes, I like the Yankees. And I said, oh, the Yankees are a good team. And then no transition, no smooth move into the next thought, just out of the blue. I used to shake a lot. And it's a real thick Cuban accent, so I'm trying to make sure I heard him correctly. Oh, oh, really? Tell me more. Yeah, I used to shake a lot, and then my dad brought me to church, and they laid hands and prayed for me. I don't shake anymore. And then he just runs off. He just leaves me hanging on that cliff. He just runs off. And I'm like, so then the dad comes over and tells me, ever since he was like two years old, he, he had seizures. Brought him to the church. We prayed for him. He hasn't had a seizure in eight months. Look at what the Lord did in my life. If you would have told me at 16 years old that I would stand in front of hundreds of people and tell them, Christ is better. He has forgiven you. Lean on him. He's not a cosmic guilt trip. He's freedom. He has life for you and life abundantly. Lean on the spirit. If you would have told me that, I would have laughed in your face. Because at 16 years old, all I wanted to do was smoke pot and chase women. That's all I wanted to do. And here I am telling you, there's a better way. I found water that doesn't leave you thirsty like all that other stuff does. So yes, he does the miraculous. There's another side to this coin. The other side of this coin is that sometimes we pray for the miraculous and God says, my son, my daughter, no. We pray for healing and the answer is no. And the Lord says, son, daughter, 
I have to walk you down into this valley. It's going to get low and it's going to get dark. But the walls are going to tower above you. It's going to feel hopeless. I'll be there with you. And in this valley, I have to teach you a lesson. It's one of the most important lessons a Christian can learn. I have to teach you that in the valley, I'm enough for you. I have to teach you that. Your Christian walk will never mature. It'll never blossom. It'll never grow. I've got to get you to the low spot first and show you I am what you really need. I need to strip all the comfort away for you to find I am your comforter. I need to strip all of the trappings of the world to find that none of that, none of that stuff could satisfy you. I satisfy you. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. But it will produce righteousness. It'll produce joy. It'll produce a dependence on me. Nothing else can. And sometimes I think that's even more miraculous. Because I've sat with people who are terminally ill. I mean, I've watched bodies get ravaged by cancer. We've laid hands, we've prayed, and it's not going away. And I've watched those people repeat the words of Job. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Hey, you want to talk about powerful? You want to talk about something that, that speaks way louder than the miracle? Because it's easy to believe when he does the miracle. It's incredible when somebody goes, he's said no, and I still trust him. So he can do far more abundantly than we ask or imagine. That is miraculous, but also sometimes it's no, and I'll be with you in the valley. So here's how I want to try to wrap our time up. There's a lot that we've talked about, a lot that we've tried to deal with. I always want to give some action steps, some handles that you can grab onto as we walk out. What do we do with this passage? What are we supposed to do with this? Here's two things I'll leave you with. Pray like Paul. We pray like Paul, and then we give the Spirit control. I know a lot of you in here have a hard time with praying. I don't know what to pray about. I don't know what to tell God. I don't know what to say. I feel awkward. I feel clumsy before him. Here's a couple of good little rails you can run on. Like, I wonder what it would look like if you started praying for yourself and for your loved ones. Would you strengthen me inwardly by your spirit? I wonder what would happen in your life. I wonder what kind of chains would break if you just started praying that. Hey, where are the dads at? Dads and husbands. You are the spiritual leader of your home. God has placed that on your shoulders, not on your wife's shoulders. You set the spiritual tone in your home. You do. Whether you accept the responsibility or you try to abdicate from it, God did not put that responsibility on your wife. It's on you. She helps, she contributes, but ultimately the responsibility of leadership's on you. You set the tone. You wanna know how you set a healthy tone? You wanna know how you make your house alive with the goodness of Christ, and you start praying this for yourself, for your wife, for your kids. My spirit strengthen me, strengthen me inwardly, strengthen my wife inwardly. God help my kids. There's so much crap out there for them to fall into. Protect them, guide them, strengthen their soul. What would it look like if, if you started praying for your family? I pray we would have fellowship with Christ. I pray Christ would be welcomed into our home. I pray that the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge 
would be like felt, it'd be tangible in our home. I just wonder what would happen. I wonder how the Lord could start to clean up some of the mess. And then I know for all of us, whether you're close to the Lord or whether you're far from the Lord, all of us have the choice today to either give the spirit control or to keep trying and puppet master everything ourselves. The Bible's real clear. If you call the shots, if you stay in control, you'll lose your life. But you give your life up to God, you turn it over to him, you'll find all that you're looking for. So my call to you is give the spirit control. Let him call the shots. Let him lead. He just does a way better job than you and I. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing passage. I thank you for these prayers. And, and I just want to pray this now. I want to pray this for myself and for my friends here. Spirit of God, we need you to strengthen us in our inner being. Strengthen us, Lord. God, we need fellowship with Christ. We are made by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. He is, he is what our soul longs for. Spirit, thank you that through you we have access to him, fellowship with him. I pray, Spirit of God, you show us the immense love that you have for us. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with the fullness of God. I pray that the fruit of the Spirit would begin to grow. I pray you prune off all the dead branches that aren't doing anything. Cut that mess off and start to grow love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We need you to do that in us. And I pray, Lord, that you would do the miraculous. Answer those prayers, God, that call for the miraculous. And, Lord, when the answer is no, because sometimes it's no, May we find that you are with us in the valley and you sustain. We love you. You are kind. You are good. You are worthy, my King. And I pray these things in your beautiful name. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. Thank you for being here.